I'm quite happy to, to you know, take abuse. Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Stuart Welsh. Hello, Kieran, and thanks for having me back. It's great to have you back, Stuart. Now, this week, we're going to explore leading from the middle. But first, Stuart, what are you reading for? What are you reading for? Well, Kieran, um, at the moment I'm reading an article called Feed Up, Back, Forward, which is written by Doug Fisher and Nancy Frey. Um, so I think we all know that feedback is a good thing and something that we should uh, we should be doing, but uh, it's easy to get it wrong and are we making the most of it? So I've just been having a, a bit of a think about that and I, I'm probably guilty of thinking that feedback is something that generally happens after students have produced a piece of work. And I maybe haven't given enough thought to how we can sort of set the scene and, and create the, the optimal conditions for feedback to be really effective. So in this article, Fisher and Frey are talking about feeding up, feeding back and feeding forwards. And these were actually kind of new terms for me. So I, I wanted to sort of find out a bit more about what that what they meant. And Fisher and Frey argue that, that feedback and probably most of us are in the same boat here. We, we think that feedback is, is just, you know, students do some work, we give them some uh, pointers about how to improve it. They argue that it's only one part of the sort of feedback, effective feedback process. And what we, what we should really be doing is setting clear learning goals and also setting, letting assessment data influence our instruction. So feeding up involves, you know, really clarifying the learning goals, emphasizing that when we're clear on the, on the objective, then we're able to design tasks and we're able to give feedback that, that really supports learning because it's tied to this very clear original definition. And then feedback, as we kind of know, revolves around teachers' responses to student work, giving them information about their progress towards that goal and suggesting kind of actions that they could take to improve. And then that final component, feed forward, which is really interesting for me, emphasizes the importance of, of modifying our instruction based on any assessment data that we've sort of brought in. So, you know, I, I talk about responsive teaching and I talk about a sort of interplay between planning and teaching and assessing. And then this kind of ties into it for me as well. It resonates with this idea of, of responsive teaching and using assessment data, not only to provide feedback to students, but also kind of to provide feedback to ourselves in the sense that we can then modify our uh, instruction accordingly. I mean, that's really, really interesting. Lots of people talk to me about this idea of, the, of you know, the decisions we make in the in the classroom and feedback's one of those ones where you think you've got it sussed and then you read something else normally dylan william shares something you're like oh no haven't <laughs> so i mean i think people will be really interested in that paper i have been reading a paper called five principles for inclusion it's by tom reese and ben newmark and essentially it sets out their I don't know if it's their position, but they're they're certainly contributing to the conversation on SEND. It's a really, really powerful, clear, really, really effective, I think, in getting the message across and in proposing alternatives to the current system within the context of what schools are experiencing right now, if that makes sense. So I think anyone who hasn't read it yet really should, because it's a, a very important piece, I think. 
So Stuart, you've been on the podcast before, but I'm just realizing this is your first time in a sort of one-on-one, not in a one-to-many situation. Would you like to introduce yourself and let everyone know who you are, where you're from? Um, yeah, Kieran, absolutely delighted to do that. I think last time I was on, we're kind of part of a panel. Um, some really great discussion went on there, and it was it was great to be involved in that. Um, so, yep, my name's Stuart Welsh. I have been in maths education for 17 years, roughly. I started as a mathematics teacher in Glasgow, um, moved on through uh, a couple of schools in Glasgow to become head of maths department there. And um, latterly, I moved to Spain, south coast of Spain, worked in an international school where uh, it was really good to get experience of sort of different uh, curricula, the IB in particular. And then um, following that, I moved to work for Complete Mathematics, who gave me the opportunity to work with a lot of schools, school groups and teachers in terms of improving their pedagogy, improving their teaching and learning. Even more recently, um, I have co-founded, along with your good self, uh, a company called Alta Education, where we're focusing on um, providing schools and school groups with uh, research-based professional learning and, and high-quality curriculum resources. So I, I spend a lot of time thinking about education. Um, I don't know how deeply, uh, but hopefully today we, we, we think quite deeply about, uh, about middle leadership, which is something that I've been talking about um, increasingly more often and uh, you know I find that it's a, it's a, such a critical part of the school structure and such a key role um, and that a lot of people who are in a mid- middle leadership role I think are really looking for some support and some advice so hopefully we can we can get to those things today. And it's great to have you here I mean it's probably an oversight on my part that you haven't been on more regularly. I do talk with you every day Kieran so you know we don't need a podcast we don't need an audience. <laughs> Also, you have to earn your brownie points by listening more regularly, I think, because. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, you, you started to mention middle leadership. This episode's all about leading from the middle. What do we mean when we say middle leaders? It's a good question, actually. It's important probably to, to clarify that because it can seem quite obvious. Um, for me, anyway, uh, a middle leader is, is somebody that, that plays a crucial role in education and leadership. Uh, but uh, usually that's within a subject area. Um, it's regardless of phase, so primary or, or secondary. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about math leads, people with additional responsibility for, for mathematics in, in some form or another, uh, heads of department or principal teachers or even faculty heads, uh, depending on the, the system. These, these are the people that are responsible for guiding colleagues and for ensuring the sort of effective implementation of strategies that are maybe being determined by senior leadership and strategies that, that contribute to the overall aim of the of the school. Um, often I find that these people, these people in the middle leadership role were, were good, um, possibly excellent uh, classroom teachers, very hardworking people, probably organized, very organized people. And then often the case seems to be that they, they find themselves in, in some sort of middle leadership role. So they've been promoted um, because they're good, essentially. But just because you're a really highly effective classroom teacher doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a great leader. Um, if you're hardworking, it's probably going to help. If you're organized, it's probably going to help. But, um, you know, I often ask the question, how, how many years does it take to become even a, you know, like a pretty good teacher? 
um, you know, nobody's a finished article. We're all still on that journey of, of sort of improvement, but there becomes a point maybe for me, five or six years, and, you know, Kieran, you might have your own thoughts, the, the listeners might have their own thoughts on this, but five or six years of, of making a, a bunch of mistakes and doing it wrong and refining and reading and learning and improving, then I think we can say, you know, we're, we're, we're becoming pretty solid as a teacher. So then we have to ask the question, what does that mean? for an individual who finds themselves promoted into middle leadership after maybe just two or three years of kind of normal classroom teaching. Um, you know, that's something that is always worth considering because as we might talk about later, I think when you move into a middle leadership role, it's quite possible that your own classroom teaching suffers as a result due to the demands of, you know, the job and other pressures. And, you know, it's something that I'll mention again, I think, but I'll mention now because it is that important. I, you don't want to let your own teaching become deprioritized. We need to find ways of keeping the, the standards high. And, you know, I was fortunate enough in my journey to um, go on a few sort of training courses, have some experience of middle leadership, understand what that role involves. Um, I learned much more when I was on the job than when I was on the training courses, uh, which I think is often the case in schools. But, um, you know, I think in a lot of cases, we might find that our middle leaders have had an afternoon or a twilight, and then they're in the job. And to some extent, we're, we're relying on some sort of intuition about what it means to be a good leader. And the truth is not everybody has that in them, um, or at least that doesn't come easily for everybody. So middle leaders, critical role within the school. Um, and, and a difficult role to, to get right. I saw someone have a conversation about how they felt their, the quality of their teaching was in decline since taking on like a, a head of maths role. I can't remember exactly the conversation, but yeah, that, that definitely echoes what I've seen, the conversations I've seen people having. And quite typically, it'll be the work that you have to do in the evening time because you've, like you say, you've just got your classroom stuff sorted. You've probably got plans and things that you can tweak you don't need to do the whole, you know, I'm an early career teacher and I'm planning everything from scratch and I'm thinking carefully about every single thing. And then you get this mid-leadership stuff. I mean, for me, five years and you're probably just about efficient. Well, certainly in my case, I was just about efficient. And then it was probably after 10 years that, you know, some sort of level of, uh, I don't want to say excellence. They don't want to blow me on trumpet too much, you know, but uh, we're talking finished products pretty close right here. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think that's that's really important. Now, middle leadership, there are lots of different titles floating about in education at the moment because you know, possibly the because of the academization process and sort of large trusts have more flexibility with how they, you know, or maybe they need different roles for terms and conditions of contracts and things. Are we talking about any sort of limiting factors when it comes to the amount of decision-making power you have? Like, is a middle leader someone who has to ultimately get sign-off from someone in the senior leadership team? Whereas in the senior leadership, you probably got some decision-making power and just need head teacher sign-off. Is it worth thinking about things in, th in those terms, just in case anyone is... I don't know, um, not, it doesn't have a title that they would, you know, we would, inverted commas, typically find in education. You know, that's a really 
interesting point that you make and I can only think that the answer to that is that it depends. Uh, it depends a lot on, on context. If you're fortunate enough to be in a, a school or an institution where, um, where you're trusted, then, um, you know, and you're valued for your expertise because middle leaders are people that bring a very specific set of skills and knowledge to the bigger school framework. Um, so if you're valued and, and you're trusted, then yes, you, you, you'll find that you do have some more freedom. And I think ultimately you, you probably are looking for sign off from somebody above, but you're also in a position where you can influence uh, those above you. And um, I've been fortunate in my career to be able to work closely with SLT and to have that trust and to be able to have those really good conversations that see middle leaders influencing the general direction of the school or the, or the school group. Um, but there are definitely other situations where people are not so fortunate and um, you know, it, it may well feel that your hands are tied. Um, but the reality is that you can, you can lead from anywhere, actually. You know, you can you can be a you can be a classroom teacher on the at the chalk face, and you're still a leader because you interact with other colleagues and you influence, and the way you behave um, will have an impact, and and that is a form of leadership. Uh, so, you know, to to answer your question, it, it is it is varied. It's difficult in that we don't know the exact context, but um, proving your worth is a good way of opening more doorways for your own thinking. And I'm not going to necessarily say we should just be pushing our own agenda, but we, you, will you will have a strong set of beliefs and values and hopefully you'll be knowledgeable enough to know what actually does work in the classroom and then to be able to take those things, present those things to leadership and, and um, you'll have a really positive influence on the decision-making further up the school. Yeah, I think that's key. When I, I work quite a lot with schools who are established in the systems for almost later success or sustained success or, or sustained improvement. And the first thing we start with is you need head teacher buy-in. You need the support of your senior leaders, but your responsibility is to have a vision that you can articulate clearly because it also, you know, it's just like planning a lesson. You start with where you want to get to and then you work back because then you can see where things might go wrong. And um, Lloyd calls it, I think he mentioned it in the podcast, calls it a pre-mortem. Now, I don't like that term. It sounds a bit, you know, from the crypt for me, but it's a really, you know, it's basically looking for misconceptions and in your planning, but on a on a school wide level. And it's not misconceptions; it's opportunities for things to to go wrong. So I think, yeah, yeah, context specific, so people will know whether or not they're a middle leader, you know, based on their own context as opposed to any sort of clear definition from us. Now, we've started to bridge into this a little bit. Why is middle leadership so important? You know, obviously, I've had almost two decades working in schools and with schools, and um, everybody in a school contributes in some way, and the role is important. Um, but for me, you know, middle leadership is is quite unique in the way that it's positioned. It's, it's right at the center of the kind of the busy day-to-day-ness of school life. And by that, you know, I mean, middle leaders are still classroom teachers. You know, you're in touch with students um, and you're in touch with parents. So immediately you're reaching out across those two different aspects of school life. But, you know, you're also responsible for a group of teachers who are within your department or on your team. And you will be working across other middle leaders, across the school with other middle leaders. 
um, and then of course working up the way with with senior leadership and and the head teacher. So you know I don't really see any other role within a school structure that is so centralised and that reaches out um, in such a sort of regular way to all the the, the various elements that that contribute. I also think that middle leadership is really important because the middle leaders should be the most knowledgeable in terms of curriculum, assessment, teaching and learning approaches. And in that way, a group of middle leaders who are on their game, who know their, who know the, their business, become this sort of furnace, it's like burning away at the heart of the school with, with ideas and with knowledge. And that furnace should be powering the school in terms of its direction. We don't always have to look to the very, very top of the leadership structure to say that's where all the ideas come from. And then everybody underneath just is there as a sort of foot soldier to execute them. In fact, it should really be the opposite. You know, you want to build a team with people who are knowledgeable and talented and then get them to, to help manage up and drive the ideas up. And, and that also goes, and that's also true for your own math team. You don't need to be the one that knows everything. Middle leaders don't need to have all the answers. Um, you know, sometimes you have to pretend <laughs> that you have all the answers, but uh, it's absolutely okay to lean on colleagues and draw on expertise and take ideas from other people. In fact, something that I'm going to say now, because I'll forget to say it later, is that um, when somebody on your team does challenge you, asks a, a difficult question, something maybe you haven't considered, don't make the mistake that I've made throughout most of my career in giving an immediate response. You don't, you don't have to immediately have a response or the right response or an answer. Just say, look, you know what, that's a really valuable comment. I want to spend a bit of time thinking it through the right answer for this. And we're going to come back and we're going to revisit that. And we're going to go thoroughly through this so we get you know the best solution. So don't feel you have to just immediately be able to throw out answers to everybody's problems off the cuff. Now, I sort of drifted a little bit away from what you'd ask there about why middle leadership is so important. But, um, you know, the, the other reasons there, I think, are that we're a, we're a bridge, you know, between uh, classroom teachers, the members of your team, and senior leadership. And this can be a bridge that takes quite a heavy burden and quite a heavy load at times because, you know, let's be honest, there'll be times when members of your team are struggling with pressures, there'll be deadlines, there'll be work to do, and they're pushing back saying to you, I'm off the, busy, how am I going to fit this in? How can I make this work? And above you, you've got initiatives and ideas coming from SLT that uh, somehow you're, you're squashed in the middle and um, you, know, you, you will inevitably find yourself in that position. But it is important that we find ways and systems of dealing with that. We want to be an advocate for our team. We want to push back when it's appropriate to SLT and say, this is unreasonable, we can't get this done. And similarly, we also need to help communicate and explain to colleagues um, why the school is moving in the direction it's moving, um, because there'll, there'll be some, some, some bigger motivational factors and reasons behind what the school's trying to do and initiatives that are trying to be brought in. And middle leaders can contribute significantly to student outcomes. Um, this is the reason why I took a post of head of department. Um, it was a member of the SLT at the time who was a mentor to me. And she said, look, Stuart, you know, you currently teach about 100 kids, roughly, uh, across your classes, and you're having a really positive impact on those kids. But if you step up to head of department, that's 700 kids in this school that you're going to be working with and that you're going to be able to um, influence the, the development of their learning. And that was a big reason for me to say, well, I want to step up to, to middle leadership because I want to have a wider impact. Um, so 
middle leader is really important because you set those standards, you set those high expectations, and then also provide support to colleagues to get them there. And I think I said already that you know, also middle leaders can influence that overall vision of the school. But the, the critical bit of middle leadership is not just saying, okay, we're all doing, you know, initiative X. Now, we've got to say, this is how we're going to do it, you know, practical strategies and ways of implementing it. And then we need to look at those, review those, refine those, improve on those and continue pushing. And so again, middle leadership there, it's not just about pulling out ideas, it's about executing and making them actually work critical to the running of a successful school. So we've got a furnace, a bridge. I'm about to say they're going to grease the wheels. <laughs> you know, essentially, they're making things, you know, the cogs turn in the school. So who knows how many more metaphors we can get through within, uh, within this. But I think you're absolutely spot on. And I think, uh, yeah, it, it just shows how important middle leadership is. Really, nothing's going to get done if leadership from the middle isn't effective. Um, and as you said at the start, it's not something we're trained in. I think I, lots more people are going on like those um, middle leader professional qualifications now than when I was starting out. I don't know. I'm not even sure if it existed, but I know that people are going on that, you know, there's almost a lot more consistency in terms of expectations. And that message is getting to people from quite early on in their careers. Cause then it's the same message that's coming through in the senior leadership and the, and the, the head teacher qualifications, you know, that's, you know, slow and steady wins the race. Let's be really deliberate about what we, what we do. What are your guiding principles for leading from the middle? I think that there's a whole range of things that, um, you know, we want to consider if we're going to be effective in this role, if we're going to be effective at, at leading from the middle. And, um, you know, some of, some of these are uh, kind of high level sort of thinking um, about the, the, the overall structure, the overall vision, the direction of the department and, the, and also the school, and others are more specific. Uh, so I think I'll, I'll try and give you just a general sense just now of, of some of these kind of principles. And for me, I think it, it boils down to, you know, an aim. We want to, you want to set an aim. Well, you know, what is it that you're actually trying to achieve in this mathematics department? or with this group of mathematics teachers in the school, what do we want to do um, for the students? And so I think it's really important that either collaboratively or you know, you, you do this yourself and then take it to the team that we, that we set an aim and that we know why we've chosen this as our aim. Because if we don't know why we're doing it, then you know, who's gonna to subscribe to that and, and why should we bother? So there needs to be a, a really sort of a clear kind of rationale uh, that that wins over and that not only wins over but really appeals to the hearts and the minds of everybody on your team so set an aim is critical know why it's your aim and then develop a set of key objectives that are designed to meet that aim and then I think anything that you do should fulfill those objectives and therefore be pushing you toward your aim because if if not if, if things that, that we're doing in the department in the classrooms across the school that don't fulfill those objectives then they're probably not taking us towards our aim. And so they're either the wrong thing or our objectives need to, to change. So I think setting an aim and knowing why it's your aim and having some structured objectives to work toward that aim are, are critical. Where do we get our aims from? Because I, I quite often have the conversation, where do I go for inspiration? How do I know what good quality mathematics teaching or just teaching in general looks like? 
where, where does that come from? Because obviously, if you're engaged in reading about our craft, if you're reading about education, research, these things start to take over. But how, how do I land on this is what my ideal is for math, from this is what my ideal is for the quality of teaching? Is it something that develops over time or can we make take deliberate steps? Okay, I'm a novice middle leader. I need to know more. I want to find my own vision. What do I do? You might find that your aim could change over time as the department moves from one stage uh, to the next, depending on the personnel, depending on, on where it's at just now. But like I said before, I think the aim should be something that's quite high level. Um, and so without getting into the real specifics of what are those objectives and, and what does highly effective teaching look like, you know, the aim is going to be something like um, you know, provide the highest quality educational experience that we can so that all students are, are able to achieve um, success in, in, you know, in school mathematics, for example. And the reason that we're doing that, the why of that is because you know, we owe it to them. Like, it is our role um, in society to help the next generation be um, equipped in the best way that we possibly can for life beyond school, for work and, and for life in general. Um, so that, when I'm talking about AIM, I'm talking about something as kind of high level as that, which I think anyone can probably subscribe to. The objectives will be harder depending on your level of knowledge and expertise. And then actually the real nuts and bolts about what are we doing in, in the department to meet these objectives or to push us towards these objectives? Again, we can probably touch upon a little bit later. One thing that crossed my mind when you mentioned that was re reasonably recently I've been talking about curriculum. And um, as part of that, I did some research into various different curricula in the in the UK and, and beyond. And whenever you find a curriculum document produced by uh, an education department or whoever it is, they basically are all the same. They all start with the same uh, sort of spiel, which is about, you know, encouraging or not even encouraging uh, a curriculum that supports young people in becoming uh, confident with mathematics and enjoying mathematics and, uh, and being able to make decisions that are going to allow them to live a better and, and sort of more successful life. So uh, almost every curriculum that you, that you read about has that sort of aspirational aim. Um, and that is that is that is a source of inspiration for us as well. But what's really kind of interesting is what is sometimes missing is the how. So there's the aim, and we kind of get the why. But where's the how? What comes after in most curricula is uh, is a list of bits of maths that need to be taught, and there's maybe some little disconnect. Um, so I don't know. That's just my take. Um, and that's something that middle leaders need to think about with their teams is, you know, how are we actually achieving those aims? A very polite way of saying you've misinterpreted what I said, Kieran. <laughs> so I appreciate your kindness. <laughs> Another guiding principle for middle leaders is to do with time. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, sometimes I, I put this last when I'm talking about effective middle leadership, but it is probably, it's probably the most important thing is that we understand that there will always be more work to do um, and you know you don't have to do it all what we want to do is we want to make sure we focus the available time that we have the limited time that we have on the tasks the initiatives the actions that are going to make the most impact i.e the things that will help us fulfill those objectives that i talked about earlier on 
So we've got this clear structure and the, the, the things that we're spending our time on. We need to continue to ask ourselves, continually ask ourselves, is this helping me fulfill an objective that I've set for the department? So for me, uh, objectives might be uh, improved teacher efficacy. Um, and then if I'm sitting sort of spending hours and hours writing emails um, to, to, to parents or whatever that might be, is that improving teacher efficacy? So yeah, there's admin to do, but we want to think about how we're spending our time. So time is limited. There'll always be more work. So focus on the things that, that matter. Um, it's okay not to do everything. Um, you know, the, the school will open the next day. Children will arrive. And people, they'll have learned something and they'll learn more the next day. Remember that nobody performs well when stressed for extended periods of time. It just it's, Humans are not designed to be stressed for extended periods. Our bodies can cope with momentarily being stressed and we respond and we need to calm down again. It is no good to be exhausted. You're no good to anybody. Um, you've got a finite amount of time and energy, so use it to work on the things that, that support the aim. Sometimes our, I don't know, our goals or objectives for whatever subject we're leading can be tied to our accountability processes. I mean, more often than not, probably. And then there's also the phenomenon of the sunk cost fallacy. How easy did you find it to discard ineffective practices, particularly in keeping in mind that admission that things aren't working might then have a negative impact on your, I don't know, performance review or whatever it is that happens every year? To be honest, I think that I didn't find it too difficult to discard things that aren't working, um, which might might sound strange. I, I appreciate the sunk cost fallacy. You know, we've we've spent a lot of time creating this thing. We've put a lot of effort into making this. Uh, we've been running this initiative for a certain amount of time. Why stop? You know, keep going. We we spent all this effort in it. But uh, when things aren't working, people know things aren't working. That's that's coming to you in the form of feedback from students, from parents, from other teachers and colleagues, or from, from SLT. Or even if you just picked up on that yourself, if it's not working, it's not working. So we should, we should be open and honest and address that because that type of climate or that culture um, is, is very healthy if people are able to sort of discuss how successful things are being and actually be able to take that step back and say, well, okay, are there alternatives? When is the time to, you know, seriously consider switching to an alternative? Um, you know, that's a that's a disposition that learning mathematics teaches you is when you, you know you're faced with a problem and you're you're trying to solve it using one approach uh, somewhere down the line. If that's not the correct approach, you have to stop, you have to back up and you have to think about an alternative approach. And so you know, your point about um, sort of performance review and uh, appraisals and, and things like that is is valid, but for me, uh, I would hold in much higher regard an individual who was able to stop and say, "We thought this would work. We tried this. We then had measures in place that um, gave us the feedback to say it wasn't working as we expected. We reviewed, we refined. It still didn't work, so we took it right back to the drawing board and we've gone with this instead. And for me, that's the person I want on my team." I mean, you're getting the full Paxman treatment. I apologize that <laughs> it's uh, it's gone fully news night. But I know that whenever um I don't know whenever Kate and I talk about something, and you know it's on a school improvement thing, and think well we've got too much to do, I find it really easy to make a list of things and go, we can cut this 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 this, and she doesn't necessarily, and so it makes me think that maybe there are lots of people who are thinking you know, 
this isn't an easy process. So it's, it's worth thinking, you know, I think you're, you're very clear in terms of how you might go about it. Um, but I thought it was worth asking, you know, and um, so it's, it's special privilege because you, because we talk every day, you're getting the, the harshest treatment and, um, you know, <laughs> I appreciate it. No, I do. And uh, I'm looking forward to this five-hour episode when it gets released. Well, Johnny and Dave would be very disappointed if it was anything less than five hours, wouldn't they? I don't want to let them down. <laughs> I was talking there about time, but um, you know, another sort of way of viewing time is, is through efficiency. And um, we know that math teams, math departments have limited time together. And so I think it's really, really important to make the most of that time. Um, we want to make sure that we are aiming for consistently high standards of teaching across the whole of the team. And to do that, we need to uh, make sure that departmental meetings are efficient and that they're focused on doing exactly that. Um, we want to make sure that we are using as much of the available time that we have together to improve teacher efficacy and uh, and not to be dealing with sort of tedious admin that can be done in a different way. I also think it's really important when we're talking about efficiency is to look at the, at the use of our own time and consider how we are using our uh, limited uh, free time. And you know, I say free time, but there isn't any free time in a school really, but non-contact time, how we're using that to, again, try and meet the aim and try and uh, fulfill the objectives that are going to take us to the aim. And for me, a big part of that is supporting colleagues in, uh, in improving. And then I think a final guiding principle for just now is um, to do with expectations. And uh, this is interesting because it just directly mirrors what, what you do with the class. Um, when you're working with a group of pupils, there's a, there's a process of expectation setting. And, you know, it's, it's key as a, as a teacher, and especially when I work with early career teachers um, or teachers who are maybe um, sort of more novice, they they maybe have in their head what they think is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. Sometimes they haven't even got as far as really being clear in their own mind what it is that we uh, what we what we want to set in terms of expectations. Never mind how are we going to try and ensure that they're met and what is the what is the result if they're not met. So I think really important that um, middle leaders develop their, their their own sense of what expectations are in terms of teaching and in terms of learning in terms of professional development and that these are communicated very clearly to the team um, we want to be very clear in what we expect to see in lessons um, you know, maybe we can explore later on this idea of should we have non-negotiables should you know middle leaders insist on certain things to take place in lessons i know that will be um causing the hair on, on the back of some people's necks to, to rise at the moment. But uh, I think I can form an argument as to why some things, you know, should be considered to be non-negotiable. And we need to also know, and in, in, uh, sort of under that heading of expectations, we need to also know where our thoughts and where our thinking sits on the sort of scale of um, the scale between giving teachers full autonomy to just go and do their thing and be great. Um, and ensuring consistency in terms of uh, the you know the high standards of teaching and learning and you know the, the extreme end of that is the centralised PowerPoint and making you know every teacher has to has to click through the same slides um, and use the same set of prescribed tasks. So th there's there's decisions to be made in there and then there's expectations to be communicated. So I think those are probably the the guiding principles that that I. Um, see is most important. Have an aim, set an aim, work towards that aim, 
think about your time, focus on doing the things that make the biggest impact and that take you toward your objectives. Be efficient in the, the sense of make the most of your time with colleagues, uh, try and focus on improving departmental meetings and then expectations, be clear in your own mind and, and communicate to colleagues the expectations that you have in terms of uh, what you want to see in lessons, what we do in this department um, and where you sort of sit on this scale, uh, this tricky scale between consistency and uh, full, full autonomy. Are you going to mention non-negotiables later on or can we get into it now? Because uh, whenever I whenever I heard that, I was like, hmm. <laughs> in in my experience, maybe it, it could just be a, a terminology thing. Non-negotiables, to me, more often than not, seems like a proxy for poor leadership. In as much as there's not really an understanding of the uh, the fact that maths lessons will differ depending on where you are in a sequence. You know, and we've talked about before the the lesson not being the unit of measurement and the idea that what I'm doing, you know, if I'm doing a lot of instruction today, it might be tomorrow that I ask people to practice. We just pick up where we left off. Non-negotiables are quite often, I want to see this in every lesson and I want to see this every day. And when I walk into classes, I want to see this rather than here are the things we think feature an effective teaching. If I don't see it today, well, Maybe I'll see it down the line and it's more, it's a bigger picture kind of thing. Cause I know where you're coming from. You want to hear the, the practices we think are informed by evidence and have a, have the best chance of supporting people's learning. What's your argument for non-negotiables? Cause that's my interpretation of that. And maybe it is that we just need a different name for it. Yeah. My, my interpretation lines up with what you've described there. So you could be right in the sense that it's just a sort of naming convention in here. Um, there are things that, that I need to see over the over a period of time that teachers need to be doing over a period of time. So going into a lesson with a with a clipboard and a, and a checklist is is not at all what I'm encouraging here uh, in any way. But there certainly are things that um, you know I feel uh, do have a place in not necessarily every single lesson, but the, the very very large majority of lessons should feature um, certain elements. Um, I know that we, you know, we've discussed like a like a, a mathematical idea not fitting neatly into a fifty-minute lesson or whatever that is, and that you know lesson two may well just pick up on where lesson one was. So the whole idea of you know five a day and everybody has to do a starter and as to or a retrieval starter with four quarters or whatever, and that's whole school policy. And I know that that happens. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. Um, and I think when we when we do dig into non-negotiables or minimum expectations, I don't know, maybe that's a better term. We'll dig into that a little bit more later on. Hopefully that'll become clearer. Yeah, so no scrap, unfortunately. I'm, I'm just waiting for that big tete-a-tete that'll make the podcast really break through. But uh, unfortunately, this time it was not to, not to be because you know, it was a very, uh, yeah, it, it is just the term non-negotiable because people have interpreted it. And then been really, you know, every lesson must have three parts, every lesson must, you know, which is seemingly what we do in education. We take things very, very literally, but hopefully not if we spend time thinking. So what does this look like in practice? Okay, so, um, you know, I, I've talked uh, for quite a while now about setting an aim. Um, I think it's really critical. So we do that either we we suggest aims but ideally we do this collaboratively with the department and we iterate down towards some sort of aim so an example of an aim that that i think works well for me is 
um, you know, this department aims to improve mathematical outcomes for all pupils because we owe it to our pupils to give them the best possible chances and the widest possible range of options as they move on to life beyond school. So what we've got in there is what we're trying to do, improve the outcomes for pupils and the reason why, because we want them to, to go on and have a successful life. Then, and we can do this collaboratively with the department, is, is come up with a set of objectives that support the, the, the team in achieving that aim. And so an example of three objectives here, I mentioned one earlier on was improve teacher efficacy. I think that we know that the single biggest thing that we can do to make a difference to student outcomes is to make our teachers better. Um, and I'm not saying our teachers are bad, but we can all improve. And so improving teacher efficacy, I think has got to be an sort of number one objective for me. Second objective that might take us toward that same aim is to create a dep departmental culture of, of sort of collaboration, but also challenge. So we want to consistently be pushing people to be better, not threatening or low threat, um, but certainly plenty of challenge and plenty of support, and that support can come through collaboration. And then a third objective for me would be to, and this is to do with the pupils, um, because we mustn't forget that they're a huge factor in the success of the school and in their own success. So I think it's important to, to set and insist upon high expectations of pupils in terms of their effort, in terms of their participation, in terms of their behaviour, and in terms of the quality of their work. So those, those are three objectives. Improve teacher efficacy, create a departmental culture of challenge and collaboration, and then the third one there is set those high expectations for students in terms of their effort and their, their participation. And then I think if we view everything that we do from then on through the lens of those objectives and keep asking the question, you know, is this thing that we're doing just now, is it helping us meet those objectives? Because if not, we need to ask ourselves, why are we doing it? The second guiding principle I talked about was time. And, um, you know, I'm sure we've, we've encountered the Pareto principle, that 80-20 rule which states that roughly 80% of the effects come from 20% of the inputs. And so really good leaders um, you know, are able to identify those uh, tasks that contribute to the, to the, to the bigger uh, gain. And so we want to try and focus on identifying and doing just a few high impact tasks really well. Now, I talked about time. I talked about um, middle leaders having limited non-contact time. And uh, quite often when I do talk with middle leaders, I ask them to tell me how many lessons they're not teaching. And sometimes it's really quite frightening how few um, you know, free lessons or available lessons there are. And then I like to ask them to sort of split that time up or, or report to me on how that time is split across three things. And if you're listening just now, you can maybe even consider this if you're in this role, how much of your time, what proportion is spent on preparing your own lessons and, and doing marking? Um, what proportion is spent on your head of department and wider school admin? And then the third thing is what proportion is spent dropping into lessons or scheduling time and having chats with colleagues about their teaching? So just thinking about your available time, which might be five or six free lessons a week, it might be less than that. Um, how much is spent preparing for your own lessons? How much is spent on wider school admin? And how much is spent dropping in to lessons and um, supporting colleagues and ch chatting to colleagues about their teaching. And it's probably no surprise that most people's time is just sucked up with admin um, and that preparing their own lessons gets a small proportion of the available time. 
uh, somebody once talked to me about the seven step lesson plan. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Karen, but it's the seven steps from the departmental base to the classroom as you just make up what you're going to teach uh, on the hoof, which I did for years. Um, and uh, it wasn't great, you know, to be honest, uh, you get through. But um, it goes back to what I said before, don't let, your, don't let your own teaching slip. And very little of head of department and middle leaders time is spent in lessons um, or scheduling time to, to chat with colleagues about their, their teaching. Now, this is not to say that it doesn't happen. I've been in schools where uh, sort of forward thinking senior leadership and head teachers have, have added more time into middle leaders um, schedules, have given them more time specifically for the purpose of catching up with another teacher, doing a bit of uh, lesson visits, learning walks or lesson observations. I don't like that phrase, but um, you know that it does happen. But I, I do feel in the majority of cases, it's not really the case. What I want to see is of the 100% available time, 25% spent preparing your own lessons, 25% spent on your head of department and wider school admin, and 50% of your available free time spent getting into lessons or scheduling time to chat with colleagues about their teaching. And when I say that to a room of middle leaders, you can see the expressions. That's not possible. How are we going to do that? At least aspire to that. Make Keep the main thing the main thing. And what's really important about your role is improving teacher efficacy. That's one of our objectives and that feeds into our aim. So we need to make sure that we prioritize it. So 50% of your available time getting into lessons or having a conversation with a teacher in your department about their, about their teaching. And then 25% preparing for lessons, 25% on wider scale admin. Like there are, there are admin duties that you can do really, really quickly. You don't need to spend absolutely ages crafting beautiful emails. You can just, you have to be a bit blunt, you have to be efficient and just brush some things off as quickly as you can. And, and even marking, so I'm not a massive fan of marking. I would just say don't do it, to be honest. Um, you know, there's there's going to be times when you can mark in lessons, get students to mark their own stuff, giving feedback, try and do that whole class, be efficient, don't spend copious hours writing feedback on student notebooks when they're probably not going to read it and they're probably not going to act, do anything about it. You know, so try and be really lean and efficient. Um, and then that leaves you with that time to, to get into lessons and, and chat with colleagues. Knowing how much you love administration, I'm surprised at how little it features, but uh, I think it's a very sensible way to divvy up your time. I mean, when I was in a school that had Microsoft Office, I used to get a digest every week about how I'd spent my time. And I can't remember if I was populating my calendar and then assigning different types of, I don't know, role or event to the tasks. And so maybe a little bit more input in terms of I'm putting in that I'm doing my data management here or I'm doing my learning walks here. But over time, that started to give me a picture of how I spent my time. So if anyone's using that, maybe worth looking into because it can help us see the big picture. You know, I know lots of banking apps try to help us see how we're spending our money because these things are happening every day and we don't have that big picture sense of, of how we're behaving. So I think, yeah, worth checking out because I think, yeah, um, it very much is a case of prioritizing that which is going to have the biggest impact. And I think you're absolutely right. It's it's spending time in class with teachers. And even if you can't spend 50%, if you just say, well, that's not possible, you're not going to spend any, any time in there, are you? So one of the other guiding principles I mentioned was being efficient. Um, and if we think about how that might sort of happen in practice, 
we're again looking at the department, we're thinking about time uh, and the way we're using that time. Uh, and one thing to consider is how frequently as a department do you meet? How, how often do you get together with your mass teaching colleagues? Whatever your, your context is. Um, I've already sort of talked there about um, you know, spending time with colleagues individually uh, using your own free time. But what about departmental meetings? Don't forget that um, your department is probably the widest mixed ability class you will have. Um, with different personalities, different backgrounds, the different levels of expertise, different uh, numbers of years of experience. And um, you know, th th there's one thing that we all have in common, and um, that is that we're all uh, interested in teaching mathematics and we're all keen on seeing students achieve well in mathematics. So we want to use that common ground um, when, we're, when we're together to build uh, a sort of a culture and an ethos of collaboration and we're all working towards something and make a point of um, showing that you welcome input from everyone so as I've described there people at different stages in their career um, will all have valid input to make and um, you know I, I don't think I've, I've ever sort of spoken this publicly but uh, certainly in my role as head of department um, I had one colleague who uh, at the time I felt was 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 um, very sort of traditional and very sort of stuck in a, in, in, in their ways. And uh, it's only on reflecting back now that I realized that um, so much of what was going on in that classroom was was really, really highly effective um, just because it wasn't all bells and whistles and you know the, the latest sort of initiative. Uh, it didn't mean that it wasn't effective. And um, you know, it's really important to remember that input from everyone is valued, even if it doesn't align with what you're currently thinking. Because as I said earlier, you don't have to know everything. You don't know everything. Uh, and you, you, at some point, you may well be wrong. So um, you know, as I say, you get this mixed ability kind of group, and you want to try and use colleagues as resources to learn from one another, um, pairing sort of experts with, with non-experts. And those groupings might change depending on what the focus is for the department. Um, something that you, you've got to try and do to improve efficiency is reduce time spent on admin uh, in departmental meetings. I know that it's been said by many, many people now, but you know, don't have it in a departmental meeting if it could be sent by email. Um, consider a weekly bulletin, even. And um, you know, this is leading sort of back to my love of admin. Is a sort of Sunday night uh, put together the week ahead type of uh, document. Um, and that's things like dates of exams and, and names of people who are taking the kids to the mass challenge or whatever it is. That sort of stuff doesn't need to be discussed in a departmental meeting. Prepare, circulate agenda in advance. You know, give people the opportunity to contribute, but then draw a line. Um, because what we can't have is departmental meetings being derailed by AOB um, that just sort of pops up and then takes 45 minutes to discuss, to be honest. I'm not even sure that AOB should exist. If it's important, it gets on the agenda. And if it's just thrown in because it's somebody's popped into somebody's head, then maybe chat about it later and raise it at a later meeting. Try and frame each agenda item as a question. Now, I've I've done this for a number of years and it kind of works because if you're as, if you're together as a department, then to show that you value the knowledge in the room, you know, ask people what they think and um if you can phrase the agenda items as questions, then that's immediately encouraging discussion rather than a sort of statement. If you can't frame it as a question, it's probably just admin. It's probably just a decree. So, um, you know, don't don't include it. If there's no way of avoiding admin, um, and it might be for whatever reason, 
that there's some information that needs to be communicated to the department from from SLT, whatever it is, um, stick it at the end. Don't have it at the beginning. Just have 10 minutes at the end for admin. And then, you know, you, you save by the bell, so to speak. You, you get through as much as you can. And then, you know, it will work. It will be fine. If you don't get through all of it, you'll communicate it in some way. Any tasks that arise should be clearly defined. And I spent pretty much my entire time as head of department getting this wrong. But eventually, I think I got it toward the end. You must... You must make sure that if somebody's taking the responsibility of doing a task or doing a job, that they understand clearly what that is. It doesn't necessarily mean that that has to take up time in the departmental meeting, thrashing that out, the exact intricacies of the task. Maybe you've done that in advance, or maybe you do that together later, but they should be clearly defined. They should be time bound. So by next week, we need to have whatever it is, or and it needs to be allocated to somebody, either an individual or pairs. I think you want to encourage colleagues to contribute and to lead parts of your departmental meeting. And I've been mentoring a few heads of department who have already sort of brought this in. And um, it's nice, you don't need to sit under the spotlight throughout an entire departmental meeting. Shift that spotlight to your colleagues. That all contributes to that um, second uh, objective that I mentioned there, trying to create that culture of, of challenge and collaboration. And um, there was a hashtag that was going around for a while. It might still do the hashtag maths rocked this week. Um, and I, I, I quite like this approach of saying to colleagues, OK, I want each of you to come to the meeting and be ready to respond to that and tell me why did math rock this week in your in your class? What was it that you did? And I have to be honest, if on a weekly basis, colleagues can't come with one decent thing to say that happened in the classroom, then they need to think a little bit harder about what they're what they're doing. Um, although I maybe wouldn't phrase it quite like that. <laughs> we should be able to always come up with something. And you don't need to pick everybody maybe just hear from a couple of people and then there you're sharing ideas and you're, you're keeping the conversation about the main thing, which for me is teaching and learning. I also think it's important in departmental meetings to ring fence some time for teaching conversations and maybe working through some tasks. And this sort of links to this idea of consistency versus autonomy. Um, because if you let teachers just do their own thing, then some of them will be using great tasks and others won't. And I think it's really important that all colleagues get exposed to great tasks, but then also how to use those tasks, because we know fine well that uh, a task is really only as good as it's used in the classroom by the teacher. So one thing to do, one way of doing that is to pick a, pick a topic uh, that's coming up in the curriculum that most teachers are, are teaching soon or that, you know, all teachers have experience of teaching at some point and then find a good task. And maybe that's somebody in your department can contribute that task. Um, and just do the maths and just work that task and then ask colleagues like how would you how would you sort of modify this task if, if somebody was really struggling to access it how can we lower the floor what scaffolding can we put around what what questioning might we use to prompt them and then also what about a pupil that's finished you know what sort of uh, probing questions might we be able to ask how might we be able to really test that understanding and then what that means is that the whole department now have got a task that not only can they go and like download from the shared area which is a common thing that the departments have but they've actually worked that task together they've thought about the intricacies of it and they'll be much better placed to go and use it more effectively in the in the classroom so ring fence some time to do tasks with pupils because then all teachers will have that uh, new task at their disposal so i mean obviously you're using the language of your experience and you're talking about departmental meetings and things like that there and although perhaps sometimes less frequent in primary, the principles still stand. This is a good way to use your time, what time you do have. So the final um, sort of guiding principle that we touched on earlier 
that I was going to elaborate on now was this idea of sort of expectations. Um, I'm, I'm not going to go into the features of highly effective teaching and learning just now. I don't think because that's possibly a whole other episode. But um, I am going to go back to this idea of, of sort of minimum expectations or, or non-negotiables, um, which I think we probably, the language there is quite important. Non-negotiables almost feels threatening um to some to some colleagues so minimum expectations and i'm quite happy to to you know take abuse for these but i, I think that um uh, almost every lesson should include some element of recap uh, and I, I don't think many people would disagree even if it's a continuation of what we were working on last lesson or in last math period it's got to have some form of recap remember yesterday we were doing this you know what did that tell us what about just just to just grease those wheels and get the um, get get the, the the sort of activate that that um, prior knowledge. I also think that if students are practicing, then they need to know if they've had success or not. So answers need to be made available. Now, there's all sorts of different ways of doing that. Whether it's students marking their own work, swapping and marking each other's, which I think is a waste of time. But there's loads of different ways of doing it. Teachers maybe just revealing answers on the board. But far too often, I see students working. Up to the end of a lesson, teacher realizes it's 30 seconds till the end of the mass period, and then the answers are displayed. Um, some students manage to mark what they've done, some don't, but there's no follow-up. There's no follow-through. Is it all correct? Well, that's great, but invariably it's not. So what about the ones that are wrong? Um, that's why I think marking should happen um, periodically throughout the, the, the lesson. So we do a bit of practice, then everybody stops. We say, okay, I can see everyone's now done question one, for example. Um, so let's stop and let's all mark our work up to this point and then carry on with the practice. What that does is it gives the teacher the opportunity to then go around to the students who had made some mistakes and give some corrective instructions, clarify and pick out any misconceptions, etc. So I think it's really important. I want to see students knowing that they've been successful or not. What about some form of periodic mixed review? So this is not going to be every lesson. But um, at some point, I want to see uh, groups of students looking back over work they've done, not just last week, last month, et cetera, but just, just to keep that mixed review going. Some sort of interleaved practice. So where it comes to strategy selection, you know, there's no point doing 20 questions that all require exactly the same um, procedure to solve them because students are not daft. They understand that today's lesson was about Pythagoras and every single question today is going to require Pythagoras. You know, you want to drop in different questions there to try and um, force the students to engage in method selection, which they, we know they find difficult. Independent practice, I touched on it earlier. Every lesson, almost, <laughs> I always add that caveat, but almost every lesson should have some sort of independent practice, I think. There's nothing wrong with 10 or 15 minutes of everyone's quiet and everybody's practicing to build up that fluency, to build up that automaticity with those kind of key skills before we go a bit deeper into maybe more um, sort of problems that are more applied or contextualized. There's actually nothing wrong with periodically having a lesson where nothing new is introduced at all, nothing new at all, and just a lesson of mixed practice of things that you've done recently. Um, I wanna see teachers continually circulating the room you know, once it comes to free practice, we need to be around there um, having a look at what the students are doing and checking in on their understanding by asking them, maybe questioning them in a way that tests their understanding of what they're doing. And that can be done in small groups or it can be done in individuals. And then 
I want to see teachers at the end of a lesson, end of a maths lesson, being able to identify the two or three students who struggled the most with today's new idea. And in some cases, that might be the same students, um, but quite often we'll find that it's not and that different students take to different kind of ideas in maths better than others. And so I want teachers to be able to say at the end of the lesson, those three I know found that pretty challenging today. And next lesson, I'm going to make a point of just pulling them together or I'm going to get them in at lunchtime or a break or whatever the, the you know, the response is. Uh, but I want teachers to know that. Now, as a middle leader, if you spend or at least aspire to spend 50% of your non-contact time in classes, then you'll be able to talk about all of that and you'll be able to have a sense of how much is going on. These expectations are mine. And I'm not saying that they need to take place in every single lesson. And I definitely don't want to see checklists and teachers being sort of graded on any of that stuff. That is an absolute no-no for me. But you can get a sense of what's going on in the room. Um, so think about what you value and then consider, you know, what do I want to see in most, if not all, but certainly in most lessons. And that actually leads on to this consistency versus autonomy thing that I touched on earlier. Um, because the less expert teachers in your department, they need to see good tasks. If you're spending 50% of your time visiting lessons, you'll know the teachers that are using good tasks and that are using them really well. So capitalize on that expertise and then share it at departmental meetings. Less expert teachers also need to understand decision-making process. So um, you might find that a highly skilled teacher goes through a really carefully selected sequence of examples with a group and that actually decides to um, do a few more examples of one particular type because the group is, you know, the information there is that they're not, um, it's not making sense or they're not, they're not getting to grips with it as easily. So decisions will be made all the time and less experienced teachers need to sort of see that. Um, as I say, the best tasks quite often go into a sort of shared area, but we need to do a bit more than that. We need to make sure that teachers are, are getting a chance to use these tasks in action. For me, when we talk about consistency and autonomy, I do, I'm not a subscriber to the centralized PowerPoint unless your department is entirely made up of really, really novice teachers. You know, there, there could be a time when, given the makeup of your department, you want to be that little bit tighter in terms of the resources that are being used. But for me, I'm not really a big fan of you know, everybody uses the same. What I think we should focus on instead is the consistency of the pedagogy and the consistency of the elements that feature in lessons rather than, you know, the actual physical resource, whether it's a slideshow or whether it's a very specific task. I really like the way you've sort of tied in your expectations within how that impacts on the, the role of middle leader. I think it'd be really, really useful. Um, I mean, Deb, we could have a few episodes on whether or not these need to feature in every lesson. Maybe that's one for the, for the future. And I was going to ask about challenges, but I all, but having looked at your notes, I think it'd be good to get a few middle leaders together and to hash out some of these challenges and how to respond to them. So we'll put a pin in that there if that's okay with you, Stuart. Um, I see, and you know, you've you've got some closing remarks. I think you know you get this is this is my section of the podcast. You know, I don't know you're getting a bit ahead of your station there, but in all seriousness, is there any are there any final words of advice you would give to teachers or middle leaders listening to this? I think that um, when I first assumed the responsibility as a middle leader, I thought I was a manager. 
And I haven't used that word at all today. We haven't used that word at all today because it's very, very different. Managing is very, very different to leading. Um, and I haven't talked about ordering the textbooks and you know managing the budget and, and um, making sure you've got the right number of calculators and all of those sort of administrative things. I haven't talked about performance review really. Um, and maybe we can think that, that that's what managers do, but actually it's, that's what leaders do. Everything I've talked about is about leadership and it's taken me, as I say, best part of two decades to get to this point. Um, I thought I could write a book on leadership. Um, I joke quite often now that it's more of a pamphlet than a book. Um, and it actually only has three bullet points in it, but the things that really matter to me, the, the, the final sort of bits of advice I would give to a middle leader um, that I've amassed over my entire career is number one, care for your colleagues. That is your job. Uh, number one priority is to remember that these are people, they've got lives, they've got their own sort of difficulties and challenges and insecurities, and they're all different. But your your role is to care for them first and foremost. Um, and, and I think that that, um, even just having that as one guiding principle will, will serve you well. I think also you want to try and aim to get everybody in your team to the point where they can more or less do your job. That again is, is the role of a leader, is to nurture and encourage and develop the, those around them so that they can eventually exceed them. And I often say that to students in the math class, I, I want you to be better at math than me. And the students look horrified, oh, how can we be better than the teacher? And the analogy is the boxing coach, perhaps, for an example, you know, they, they, they know um, the strategies, the techniques, the, the, the science of boxing, but they'll never be in the ring as a world champion. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to sort of be the boxing coach and we're trying to create these world champions in the ring. So if you can try and aim to get everyone to the point where they can do your job, then you can just kick back, you can relax, and you can spend all that spare time thinking about the stuff that you find really, really interesting. Perfect. I'm looking forward to the release of that three bullet point pamphlet. I think, I think it'll be really useful for teachers. Who's going to publish it for you? I'll put, try and put you in contact with some people. It's been an absolute pleasure, Stuart. There's definitely more for this. This conversation has further to go. But I think for now, all that's left to do is say thank you very much for joining me. You're very welcome, Kieran. It's been an absolute pleasure. And everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.